escaping now. It's the holiday season, which can be rather hellish, as likely many of you are experiencing right now. But I wanted to share something that past contributor and guest on the show, Jim Narikas at Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, recently posted, actually just posted on social media. <clears throat> he writes that in the French version of the 12 Days of Christmas, Chris, you're going to like this, the gifts include eight biting cows... In Sweden, you get six flayed sheep. The Faroe Islands version goes up to 15 days. And on the 14th day, there are 14 rounds of cheese. In Scotland, there are 13 days, and the gifts mostly come in threes, though there are a few singletons, including an Arabian Baboon. That sounds like us English speakers got the short end of the stick on the 12 days of Christmas. Yes, the holiday season is upon us. And while we hope to see each and every one of you tonight during our final This Is Hell office hours of 2023, the This Is Hell holiday office party, that is every one of you up to the fire marshal's limit, of course. Some of you may be seeing family that you are not looking forward to seeing during this holiday season. You know, the people in your family who may ask you questions like, why do you hate America? Or Israel or Hamas, whose side are you on? Or make a statement like, you know, when I was a kid, there weren't no transgender people. Or that all lives matter. In fact, now may be a good time for you to consider and then reconsider what family is and what it can be. I know that's what I did right before leaving on my annual two-week summer vacation with family at Cottage on Lake. And what I realized is that I am very, very fortunate to have a family that has not limited their love and care for each other to only those that are related to us, as the eugenicists say, by blood. With that in mind, today we are playing our July 17th interview with M.E. O'Brien when she joined us to discuss her new book, Family Abolition, Capitalism, and the Communizing of Care. That's the thing about Emmy's book. It's not against the loving and care family members show each other. It's actually very much for expanding that love and care to not be limited to only those who are related to you by birth. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Chris Coolfan. Chris, what are you? What are your plans for the next couple of weeks? So, what are you doing during the holiday season? I'm visiting my dad, uh, getting some of those weird questions that you've, you've just <laughs> read. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, but that that should be. Uh, we're not a traditional Christmas family, and I kind of do. You know, I think we're doing. Um, 
What was it? Passover? That's around the same time. Sure. Yeah. So my, something. I, I yeah, my know. partner's Jewish, so I might do some pass, maybe some Passover action, and then I'm going to my dad's for the Christmas action, and then I think I'll be well rounded. So. Where's your dad in state? Oh yeah, yeah. He's um, pretty much by the Bricker and Wall, Grand and Harlem, or in that area. Oh no, so. kidding. Hmm? In the house that you grew up in? Oh no, I grew up yeah by, by Cicero, between Cicero and Pulaski around there. Oh okay. But when he when he got older, he bought himself a little place there, and he, was, he got the Bricker and Wall and the famous Caputos that everyone loves over there. So you know. no, really. Yeah. That's great, man. I love that place. Fun fact, though, uh, if you watch the movie Casino in the book, uh, De Niro and uh, Tony, uh, Joe Pesci's character met on the corner of Grand and Harlem, actually. So. Oh fact. no, kidding! <laughs> now I'm gonna have to look, go back and look at that. Sure. I love when you see Chicago architecture in movies, whether it's, you know, uh, what was the movie uh, Candyman, which is a horrible movie, but it's a great documentary. Documentary when it comes to Cabrini Green. Uh, uh, what was the movie about uh, where they filmed it during the Democratic National Convention? Why am I forgetting it right now? In 1968, but they show uh, the old Skid Row that was where Will, uh, you know Truman College is today. So I always love stumbling across that thing. So uh, over the next couple of weeks, I hope to actually be able to relax. That's the one thing about visiting others for the holidays: you are not at your home, so you can't do whatever you want. Hanging out naked and ripping bong hits while getting sloshed are kind of out of the question. That is until the grown-ups and their children go to bed when suddenly it's party, party, party with whomever is still conscious. In the meantime, Chris, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Uh, Viet to relieve 2023 all over again, what would be the thing you dread living through again the most. And thanks again to Criage for uh, writing this week's question from hell. We are now asking people on the Welcome to the Hellhole Facebook group page what they think a good question from hell would be. And we got like 20 responses, and that's going to be our questions from hell uh, for the next several weeks on the show. Next week, no question from hell, because we are playing uh, episodes in their entirety, a Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday episode from the past. We will be playing those uh, December 26th through 28th. And uh, coming up, we'll tell you what's happening on this week's bonus Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. And we will share with you our three uh, favorite episodes of the year that we will be playing, like I said, in their entirety next week here on This Is Hell, the best of 2023. The only radio show podcast or live stream where we give you a 100% money-back guarantee that the guests are smarter than the host. This is Hell and Now with special thanks to listener Hugh, our interview on family abolition, with M.E. O'Brien. This is hell. This is hell, and that's a real problem for what is considered the traditional family that capitalism depends upon. For any success, it does have. When the priorities of property are put ahead of those that are best for the people, a potential environment for control and abuse emerges, emerges. one that is conducive to fomenting all levels of the worst parts of capitalism, from patriarchy to racism to white supremacy and beyond. Here to help us imagine a world of love and care instead of hate and competition. M.E. O'Brien is author of Family Abolition, Capitalism, and the Communizing of Care. Welcome to This is Hell, M.E. 
Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me on, Chuck. Thank you so much for being on the show. I wanted to start with this uh, thing that you mentioned at the beginning of your introduction, uh, something that took place in Oaxaca. You write that in June 2006, 3,000 police officers attacked a teacher's protest in the Mexican city of Oaxaca. The teachers had been on strike for a month, occupying the central square of the city. In the aftermath of the confrontation, hundreds of social movement organizations gathered to form the Assembly of uh, the Popular Assembly of the People of Oaxaca, an organization that became the central coordinating body of hundreds of protests and occupations over the coming seven months. In August of that year, just a couple of months later, uh, insurgent women seized control of multiple radio stations, going on to use them as communications hubs for the movement. At the end of one radio broadcast of an occupied station, the newscaster concluded, transmitting from the Oaxaca Commune. Insurgents took up the name, referencing the Paris Commune of 1871. So, I mean, these communes not only arose in the 19th century, but in the early 21st century. How important is that history and knowledge that it had been done in the past to the Oaxaca movement? How important is it for any movement to have awareness uh, that what seems like is the improbable, if not the impossible, has in fact happened before and therefore it can happen again. How important is it to know these kinds of transformations have happened in the past? Um, yeah, uh, great question. So I, I talk about the Oaxaca Commune uh, in 2006, uh, both as an example of mass working class protest and collective social movement, uh, and particularly for the examples in it, like there are in many mass working class movements of what I call insurgent social reproduction. So these are examples of, uh, in this case, women protesters engaging in the activities that they might do isolated in their homes and their families, but doing it as part of collectively reproducing the movement as a whole. So people cooking, hanging out together, sharing stories, transmitting messages and coffee, uh, taking care of children, all done in this case on the barricades. So these are barricades set up in Oaxaca to try to stop nightly terror attacks by the military, by police, and by the paramilitary forces uh, that were mobilized to, to harm insurgents, to harm working class protesters. And so these barricades became uh, became moments of women in the protests, indigenous women in this case, moving beyond the confines of their family and beginning to reproduce uh, the protests through their collective activities of cooking and caring for each other. So I, I, when people hear the word commune, they often think about isolated rural communities living together, perhaps a little cultish. And uh, in, in the case of the Paris Commune and the Oaxaca Commune, it, the word refers to a massive urban mobilization uh, of a protest movement that takes over a city, establishes new democratic governing institutions, and creates the basis of a new way of life as a means of sustaining a protest and fighting against, in this case, the forces of capital and state violence and anti-Indigenous and anti-worker violence. So why is moving beyond, why is expanding that kind of care uh, beyond the traditional family structure that we have? Why do you think that is a target for such state violence? Um, yeah, so I, 
we we live our lives so isolated in private family units. Our society is really dominated by the private family, and we are all uh, rely, or the vast majority of people in society rely on what care we can get. Or we often rely on families, and that's such an integral part of capitalist society that the means of survival are either come from market transactions or occasionally state programs or often the private family. And I'm really interested in these moments that people go beyond these dominant uh, moments of capitalist reproduction. Uh, the moments that people care for each other, moments that people reach out beyond their family and figure out how to engage in collective practices for survival and well-being. And I find these in these various protest structures, these moments of mass protest. And I talk about the Oaxaca Commune, I talk about other historical examples. We could look at sit-down strikes or anti-colonial guerrilla warfare or the Occupy protests or uh, the uh, protests against the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline and in Standing Rock. These are all examples where you know lots of people come together they try to sustain a protest. They're fighting against the policies of capital, of, against capitalism and against the state. And in order to do that, they have to create something beyond the private family. They have to create the basis of collective care that that might take the form of a protest kitchen, uh, uh, collective childcare arrangements. And this, these examples I think are really powerful because they show an alternative to the family that is not about a withdrawal of care or reduction of care, but actually about expanding the means of survival outside of the private family. Uh, and these moments of protest are always quite threatening to elites. I think there's no question that there's a real effort at repressing them, a real effort at crushing the basis of sustained protest. And the example of the Oaxaca Commune you know, that the counter-revolution, the question of the Oaxaca commune involved the mobilization of the Mexican state and terrorist paramilitary forces and the capitalist class in Oaxaca and Mexico, but also involved men uh, insisting that their wives come back home and start cooking for them. That, that the reassertion of the family was a component to the counter-revolutionary process there. Do the participants in these kinds of uprisings, if you will, do they have to be prepared for this to happen? Do they have to be trained for this to happen? Do they have to have a, a plan laid out? Or is this all very much an ad-libbed situation where people just react at the moment to what is needed? Is this something that people must train for for years and then have a written out plan? Or is this something that spontaneously happens and you just have to see where the revolution will take you? Yeah, so, uh, you know, recently the George Floyd rebellion happened in the United States was the biggest mobilization in the country's history. 26 million people marched in the street. There were the uh, National Guard was mobilized to um, stop riots and nightly protests in, in a couple hundred cities. 14,000 people were arrested. And remarkably, nobody planned, right, that there have been uh, organizing and movements against police brutality for decades. There are many, many hundreds of organizations in the United States that would really love to be able to kick off a protest of this scale. 
But one of the remarkable things about mass protest movements is they completely outstrip any organizer's plan that, that we, I've worked as an organizer for a long time and we put in a lot of effort at building a campaign, at planning a protest, to get in something off the ground. And one of the striking things that happens periodically is protest movements kick off that are uh, vastly larger than anything anyone could have planned. Um, and how extraordinary that is. I think that's, that's such a tremendous source of hope and potential social change and potential dynamism. And it calls on a certain kind of humility on the part of organizers of recognizing that the forces that create the basis of movements are far, far bigger than us. And frankly, when large numbers of working class people come together in uh, protest or mobilization, they um, have to become leaders themselves in the process of the struggle. And many, many important things about how protests need to proceed can't be based on an already determined script, an already determined plan, can't be based on trying to execute you know, some, some historical program put out by, by a political organization, but instead emerge as concrete solutions to the problems that we face in our day-to-day -day lives and the problems faced in trying to keep a protest going. Uh, and I think many, many important strategic innovations in each movement come about through large numbers of people confronting a situation and trying to figure it out together on the spot. So two examples of this, one in the George Floyd protest, the moment that uh, large numbers of teenagers, working class people led by uh, black young people took the highways and blocked freeways was a very early tactic in Black Lives Matter in the George Floyd rebellion and ended up having a really major impact on the disruptive power of the protests. And then you, we mentioned the Paris Commune at the beginning, Karl Marx had been involved in militant movements throughout his life in the 19th century and had been writing and theorizing and was obviously a really central figure in the workers' movement in Europe at the time. And the Paris Commune completely blew his mind. When workers took over Paris in 1871, uh, Marx said it was the first example ever of a working class anti-capitalist government emerging. And it transformed his thinking about how social movements actually could unfold and the process of winning uh, a liberated society after capitalism, that it, was, that it was working class people in the streets day after day, arguing about what should be done, trying to innovate new forms of collective practice of governance and decision making. So I think we see that over and over again throughout history of people coming together and finding solutions in the midst of insurgency, of mass protests that could not easily have been imagined or planned ahead of time. And importantly, this is how I think about family abolition. So people often, family abolition has had a lot of meanings historically. I go through a lot of different meanings that it has had for uh, moments that protests, that working class movements, revolutionary movements have tried to go beyond the private family as a constraint on society and human freedom and the, proceed, uh, the moving ahead of struggle. Um, but then ultimately, I don't think family abolition is a program or a blueprint that people need to try to implement in their lives following you know, some study of my book. 
that it's an actual process that unfolds whenever large numbers of people enter and struggle together, whenever there's a sustained disruption to the rhythms of work and capitalist society. The family abolition is something that necessarily emerges simultaneously as an unfolding of the protest itself. And as more and more people in the protest begin to take the opportunity to live differently, to love differently, to care for each other differently. And that, that from an organizing perspective, from a theory perspective, I'm really interested in learning from the dynamic of the movements themselves and recognizing in these protests uh, the actual process of pushing against and going beyond the private family and the private household as a necessary part of the struggle unfolding. Whether or not people necessarily see it that way or name it that way or have planned it that way at all. And as you were pointing out earlier, the counter-revolution that happened, as you write, the reassertion of the family as a system of private male-dominated households, that contributed to the defeat of the Oaxaca commune, for instance. Now, you write that the women could not act as both uh, frontline militants and obedient wives. So it sounds like the family structure, the traditional family structure that we have today, that women are essentially held hostage for free labor. But I do know many families today where the man and woman have if, switched, if you will, from this, those traditional roles. However, those roles are still very much intact within their family structure. If gender roles are reversed, is the family still problematic, uh, possibly because of the roles it demands on the, in this case, the man and the woman, the husband and the wife? Is the, is the problem that women have certain roles and men have certain roles or that those roles exist? Uh, yeah, so I, um, I'm trans and I'm very oriented to trans rights and trans liberation and the well-being of trans people. And certainly the trans movement, you know, has joined in many ways with feminist struggle and women's struggle uh, in recognizing the ways that gender roles can be really harmful, can be really inimical to human freedom and well-being. And that the centrality, the tremendous importance in transforming gender roles and gender expectations in uh, forming more equitable, more respectful, more facilitating uh, freer lives, better lives, lives that we are able to connect more deeply to our desire and well-being and form authentic relationships with other people. And the family has been a very important site of this struggle that you know, we see trans children working very hard in trying to transform and educate their own parents. Uh, we see uh, couples trying to figure out how to have a more equitable distribution of labor. We see uh, you know, struggles around issues of child abuse and domestic partner violence and intimate partner violence uh, that you know, have played a very, very powerful role in struggles against a kind of normative family form. I. Um, I'm interested in both taking these struggles very, very seriously and really appreciating the, all the work that people do in trying to form alternative families, better families, more equitable families, and recognizing that in our society, there's some real constraints on that, that we, uh, by private households, 
are not just something that we all choose because we're brainwashed or we can't think of anything better, but we pursue private households, uh, you know, finding a couple, uh, finding a partner to age with, raising children with some private household, because that is a necessary survival strategy in racial capitalism. That in the dynamics of labor markets, state policy, of what it takes to survive and reproduce yourself in the world, we form private households that we're then really dependent on. That the private household is a major dimension of reproduction. And that we, um, that in our efforts to form alternative families, better families, chosen families, they often end up reproducing many of the problems that we are trying to get away from. That the contradictions of trying to survive in a capitalist society put tremendous pressures on people that end up fragmenting chosen relationships, end up um, reproducing all sorts of forms of gender inequality, class inequality within within chosen family structures, and end up putting a lot of pressure on people um, uh, reimposing, uh, in some cases, traditional gender norms. And so part of my work is both recognizing the power and importance of efforts at transforming how we relate to each other within households, but then also recognizing how the structure of the private household itself is a source of tremendous problems. And trying to imagine trying to draw out, trying to recognize and struggle the possibility of moving beyond the private household as the basis of reproducing society. That, that, that whole dynamic of living in isolated ways with one or two adults and having uh, full responsibility for children in this isolated dynamic, that that is the source of a lot of our problems. And that in trying to think about gender freedom, sexual freedom, trying to think about better relationships with each other, we actually need to start changing the material conditions of what it takes to survive and how the basis of private households in capitalist society. So it would seem that capitalism isn't conducive to what we might consider a happy family life. But as, as you point out in your book, capitalism depends upon that traditional family life. Is there a contradiction there? Or uh, how do you balance the two things of capitalism seemingly not being conducive to a happy family life while capitalism depends upon people not having that happy family life? Yeah. So there's a long, I uh, part two or part one of my book goes into a long history of the family under capitalism and ch- recognizing the changing role of the working class family on the settler colonies of Canada and the United States, in uh, slave plantations in the Caribbean and the United States, in industrial, industrializing cities in Europe. And then thinking about the sort of unfolding of capitalist development and it's changing logic and opportunities of the working class family. And one of the links across these historical eras is over and over again, we see uh, the legitimation and valorization of a very particular kind of family, right? A family modeled after the bourgeois family, after the family of settler colonialism, after the family of plantation owners, a family really based on property, based on ownership, based on male domination, based on being able to establish rigid distinctions between the uh, private life and public life uh, on rigid gender roles. And that this sort of idealized family 
than uh, a lot of other people might aspire to, but really not be able to form. And part of the history of the idealized family is then denigrating, attacking, and in some cases, violently obliterating other kinds of care relations. So really extreme examples of this under settler colonialism, the dynamics of separating indigenous people from their children, the residential boarding schools, uh, the dynamics of natal alienation under slavery, separating uh, women from their children um, as that was built into the logic of slavery. And then today we see the family policing system, the apparatus of state violence that's mostly directed against poor black people uh, who, who, you know, rather than giving people the resources they need to actually be able to parent, um, lovingly, they instead raid and disrupt people's relationships and put kids into a really abusive foster care system. So that there's a whole, this whole history of valorizing certain kinds of families while, valor, uh, while attacking and persecuting and pathologizing and disrupting other kinds of care relations. So that's a, that's a whole history that I think is really important to trace, really important to unfold. And one of the processes, one of the historical moments that I'm interested in is at the end of the 19th century when it became possible for a section of the working class, more stable, more white, to model their own family lives after the capitalist class. And so this was the creation of what we might call the middle class, the respectable working class, the development of housewives, as a, the family wage, as something that a section of the working class is able to achieve and achieve, you know, a great benefit in terms of reducing mortality, increasing health outcomes, creating the basis of a stable life, but also at a cost of, of severing the working class movement between respectable workers on the one hand and the poor queer people, black people, indigenous people on the other that were really expelled or excluded from what became like respectable socialist politics. And so that's a history I'm really interested in, but it's a history that can be hard to hold on to because since the 1970s, it's effectively become impossible for any working class people to sustain a household on a single wage earner, that the overall conditions of working class life have really deteriorated, increasing precarity, stagnating wages, a lot of difficulty that people are facing that has meant that there's no longer really a significant section of the working class that's able to sustain this idealized life. So that's that's a history I'm really interested in, the sort of breaking down of of a certain kind of conventional family expectations that has involved some expanding freedom for some people. You know, we see a lot more queer couples, a lot more people choosing to marry later or making different kinds of choices around parenting, but then also an intensifying dependence on the private household that although we uh, there's more room to develop non-conventional family structures, it's also a lot more difficult to form a stable household and a lot more difficult to figure out how to survive outside of one. Um, yeah, the tension you point to, I, I think it's certainly the case that capitalism has always depended on private families, uh, but what kind of families it depends on in working class life has actually varied a lot over time. 
and the family is a core mechanism for reproducing the workforce for the next generation. But the capitalism does not actually depend on very many people being able to access the idealized family life, uh, the normative family life that it that is presented in media or romanticized all over, that actually that can be something that only a, a very small number of people can achieve. And that, uh, yeah, capitalism doesn't really care if we're able to form the households and valorizes. So the idea that we have of the traditional family is based on a family of privilege, is based on a family that has access to a lot of resources. And then when families are not wealthy and they don't live up to those standards, they're punished by society. They're punished by politicians and politicians hold that traditional family above all else. You were mentioning Indian boarding schools. My niece lives across the street from what was uh, a so-called Indian boarding school. And when people do have... And they have of late have had a uh, increased awareness about the brutality, the cruelty, the uh, sexual abuse that happened in these Indian boarding schools. But when we hear the story of why uh, indigenous people are taken away to these schools, it's often framed as they're being taught whiteness, they're being taught Christianity. But not, I've never heard them say they're trying to change the family structure. Is family, to a certain extent, above criticism within the debate and dialogue that we have right now over the social issues that have not only plagued us now, but have plagued people like the indigenous in the past? Is the family structure something that is not mentioned because it is above criticism and analysis? Yeah, I think there's a very, very pervasive, very deep set romanticization of the family that across the political spectrum, including huge sections of the left and progressivism, that we, that, you know, one, obviously many, many people value their families and care about their families a lot. And two, many people, nearly everyone depends on family relations to varying extent uh, as part of our material survival. And so that, but that that the romanticization of family really goes beyond this. That that the family as an institution, as a social practice, as a way of organizing society, that it's a limit to human uh, to our imagination. That we don't allow ourselves to think beyond it or imagine it. And part of what the implications of that is, then we retroactively ascribe uh, to all sorts of different strategies of survival and care something that more closely resembles the, the nuclear household, the private family. And so one example, you know, we, we were talking about Indian boarding schools. There's been a lot in the news the last few years as they dug up these mass graves at uh, residential schools in Canada and the United States. And it's very clear these were instruments of mass torture, sexual abuse and tremendous violence. Um, almost simultaneously with the Indian boarding schools is the history of allotments so the U.S. Uh, redist- seized and redistributed res- reservation land to allocating it to male-dominated nuclear families of indigenous people. And so this was an active effort at destroying the more collective, expansive governance and relationship to land that characterized indigenous life to break the political power of the reservations and to force indigenous families into a property relation based on individual family ownership 
of land in order to allow for selling to white people, for the breakdown of the collective life of indigenous societies. And so that, that you know, we, uh, there's both this violent genocidal effort at separating parents and children simultaneously with an effort at dividing up what were collectively owned, collectively managed uh, communities into private family-oriented plots. So the family, like indigenous people were both excluded from the family in this very particular way of uh, people being separated from their children and the genocide and violence of that, but also that the family was a key component to anti-Indigenous genocide and efforts at destroying Indigenous society and to force people into white relationships of property and family. We are speaking with M.E. O'Brien, author of Family Abolition, Capitalism, and the Communizing of Care. Find out more about M.E. at GenderHorizon.com. Become a patron of M.E. O'Brien on Patreon at Patreon.com slash M.E. O'Brien. O'Brien is spelled with an E, O-B-R-I-E-N. Do we fear family abolition because of the poor state of our social services, because our family is now our safety net, our lifeboat, is our dependence increasingly being put on the traditional family structure because the safety net is collapsing under privatization and neoliberalism? Is the family becoming more important at a time when we need to transform the family? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, uh, people, you know, people have a lot of charged feelings about the concept of family abolition and they imagine the left trying to invade their lives and take their families away. Uh, And given how hard it is to survive in the world and how much we might depend on our families in that process, that's that's an understandable fear, but it's a misunderstanding of family abolition as a politics, as a vision, and the long and rich history of people critiquing the family. That, That the need is not to take away people's families, uh, although there are, are plenty of people that want to get out of their households and want to have alternatives, but to expand the supports available, to expand the means available for people to be able to make freer choices about the kinds of lives that they lead. So, you know, in thinking about uh, on a reform level, that means the expansion of all the resources that we so often depend on in our families, uh, affordable housing, healthcare, uh, education, food, that these should be much more widely and freely available, uh, that we that it's grossly unjust, that our material conditions, our means of survival, our means of human flourishing are dependent on who we happen to be related to and who we happen to be having sex with and who we happen to choose to live with. Uh, and then thinking about revolutionary struggle, thinking about going beyond capitalist society, You know, there's a long history of anti-capitalists talking about the transformation of the state, of collective practices of governance, the transformation of our workplaces and the organization of the economy, and really recognizing that a broader process of fighting against capitalist society is necessarily going to also transform our private lives, transform how we live together, how we love together, and appreciating and recognizing throughout history and struggles today how people are already struggling to go beyond the private family and how that's really about expanding access to care 
expanding the kind of love and support that we depend on for families and making that much more widely and unconditionally available in society at large. And you mentioned that human life depends on care. We are all inescapably interdependent. Is the family denial of that interdependence and driven by a desire to be able to care for yourself without the help of others? Is this at the core of things like the self-made myth? It, it, is the family a denial of a denialism based on that interdependence that we don't need anybody else? Yeah, so there's both a fantasy that we can live individually in the world, right? So that many people uh, today are more and more cut off from, um, uh, are unable or interested in forming family lives. But then also the family itself, there's this whole illusion that it's able to be self-sustaining, self-reproducing, and uh, COVID-19 was a really stark example of how limited this was, that as broader supports became less available to people, as the sort of public education, being able to go out, being able to interact more widely in the world, that it became very clear very quickly that trying to survive as a private family in isolation was effectively impossible that even private families today depend on a huge infrastructure of social services, of um, uh, services that you might buy on the market, of support staff of all different sorts, that we are all profoundly interdependent with each other and frankly, profoundly interdependent on a global scale. And that we need social forms that reflect that interdependence, that appreciate it, and begin to think about how to relate to it justly with, with um, in ways that take seriously the well-being of everybody involved. And that the private family is a, is a fantasy, right? We imagine that our households can survive on their own, but they really can. We depend on a much broader society and we need a politics that reflects that each of our survivals is interdependent with each other. And you point out that there is no firm conceptual line separating care labor from other forms of labor because all forms of labor in society are, as you've been pointing out, interdependent on each other. So what keeps us from recognizing that all labor is independent on, interdependent on each other? Are we, are we brainwashed? Is it the constant propaganda that we're being uh, told about the greatness and the sanctity of family? What, what keeps us from recognizing that we are all independent upon each other because do we want to be in that state of denialism? Yeah, so I, I think a key part of capitalist society is a divide, a uh, separation between the personal dependency that we have in the family, the personal relationships of dependency, and the impersonal relationships of market transactions. So we don't know the people who make our clothes. We don't know the people who build our homes. We don't know the people who maintain the infrastructure of water and electricity, right? These are either done by government programs or they're done by impersonal market transactions. And we, in our minds, we experience the love and care within the family or the violence and abuse and, uh, and domination within the family, whatever it is, as a personal relationship of dependency. 
And then we go out into the world and buy products that we need, get the resources and infrastructure and support that we need in these impersonal market relationships. And that that divide really uh, shapes how we think about politics. It really shapes how we navigate struggles and part of, or how we navigate surviving in the world. And I think part of working class struggle, part of mass protest is beginning to break that down, is beginning to have solidarity with workers across industries, beginning to recognize the links of interdependency that tie us together materially, and that uh, that can both happen during strikes or periods of disruptions and happen as people begin to try to form other sorts of connections and support. So thinking about uh, the grocery stores started emptying out in New York City during COVID in many working class neighborhoods. So it was very hard to get groceries and people putting together strategies for trying to figure out how to get their neighbors food uh, that people uh, that many people were biking all over New York, figuring out food, reaching out to farmers, to CSAs, trying to figure out how to form personal relationships that bridged this, uh, the breakdowns of market transactions. And then also going beyond the, this sort of narrow space of the private family as the sole uh, place that we really take seriously our personal relationships. And that one of the things that happens in struggles is be, people would begin to depend on each other much more broadly. And you also mentioned reconciliation. You say that it's absolutely necessary for, as you point out, the beloved community, which is a phrase that you take from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, is a deliberate intention, a guiding principle that informs nonviolent action. For nonviolence, the intent is always to create the be- beloved community. Its immediate form is reconciliation. There's another element that must be present in our struggle, King writes, that then makes our resistance and nonviolence truly meaningful. That element is reconciliation. Why is reconciliation so necessary? How difficult is it, considering there are many who have no interest in reconciling differences? Um, I I turned to King at the end in talking about beloved community and as well a concept from Marx and Marxism of uh, Gemeinweisen translated as community. And both really interest me because they are not, the way that we think about community right now is something that already exists, something that's easily at hand. We, uh, you know, might talk about the LGBT community or might, there are all sorts of ideas of community as this already existing group of people that we can count on in some way. And that actually, I think when we talk about community, we're talking about something that we might desire, that we might imagine, that we might yearn for, but mostly we're talking about something that doesn't actually fully exist that communities are under racial capitalism are really precarious. They're very difficult to hold together. They're very difficult to sustain. And they really, by and large, don't meet the needs of what we imagine out of them. Um, And the community is instead thinking about community as something to be discovered, something to be created, and something that has to emerge over the course of struggle. So reconciliation is a is a way of imagining the overcoming of the kind of violence and separation that characterize our world and beginning to try to think about what it means to form relationships of real solidarity and care expansively across society. And that could take the form of new social institutions and forms of struggle. uh, And that, that that is a necessary process 
we're trying to imagine the emergence, the discovery, the building of communities that could really be spaces of genuine care. So one of the, uh, just something that I'd been thinking about a lot, and then you bring it up in your writing, you write that even the most loathsome, violent, and harmful person still needs a place to sleep under humane conditions. But in a different sense, this model of socialism completely misses an essential element of a just society, that we have the chance to grow to love each other, to grow to be loved, to express and act on that love in rich, consensual ways, to use that love to fulfill and enrich our lives. A free society is one built on mutual care. However, within liberalism, there is what seems to be an obsession with means testing and being against and well opposed to universalism. What happens to care when it is means tested and not universal? Why do liberals oppose that kind of universalism? So uh, I, I'm breaching two related ideas that you're engaging in there. One is that the basic means of survival should be fundamental universal human rights that the idea that anyone should be without a place to live, without the food that they need, without healthcare, is grossly inhumane, is really grossly unjust, and that our capitalist society restricts what we need to survive and uh, and as a means of social control, as a means of disciplining people's behavior, as a means of forcing people into work that they don't want to do, that isn't helpful to them, that isn't helpful to other people. Uh, so that making the means of survival universal is a fundamental ethical commitment, widely shared by socialists, I think, very, very correctly. Uh, what, what the family abolitionist piece adds to that is one recognizing that if these things are widely and universally available, people might make really different choices about how to organize their interpersonal lives. People, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of debate about whether universal basic income, for example, undermines family life, leads to divorces or whatnot. And, you know, there's, there's some good a debate between socialists and others about uh, it doesn't actually increase divorce rates, but a family abolitionist perspective is recognizing that actually people having the means of support outside the family and choosing to opt out of a relationship that doesn't feel good to them or choosing not to marry is really legitimate and should be respected, should be supported. The idea that welfare benefits might lead to uh reduction of marriage is not something that we should shirk from or be afraid of, that actually uh, part of the advantage of expanding access to care is that people could make very different kinds of decisions about how to organize their private lives. And that that's something that we should embrace as a source of freedom and a source of well-being. But there's a more difficult point there that I think we it's harder for us to imagine which is the kind of care and love and support that we rely on for families, you know, of like the care for a newborn kid, the care of when we're aging, the care when we're sick, the care when we're dying, that these are forms of care that we should also have beyond just housing and healthcare and food, the basic material necessities of life, that we also, everyone needs um, forms of interpersonal care love and support and figuring out the kinds of social practices that could help foster that, that could help help our society be able to care for each other beyond just counting on private families to do it. 
Uh, and that requires thinking beyond the practices of the state and the family and the market as we currently imagine. You uh, just a couple more questions for you, M.E. Uh, you mentioned not only a collective horizon, but you also mentioned the self-realization of each individual on that horizon. So is the horizon one that is both collective and individual? How can it be both? Because, you know, we're constantly being told competition and cooperation are in competition with each other. Uh, I, I Yes, I think just fundamentally, human, our well-being, our human flourishing depends on both being able to care for each other, being able to support each other, being able to form the collective practices of interdependence that provide the support that we all need, and taking each person's own unfolding process, unfolding desire, and discovery of their own well-being very seriously. Uh, A touchstone for me for this is thinking about trans freedom and trans well-being, that it is a, that for many, many people discovering their own gender identities when it doesn't match other people's expectations can be a very complex and very rich personal process of self-discovery and self-exploration that can have a whole dimension that's private, that needs to be protected against other people's expectations allowing someone to discover their own desire and discover what works for them. But that, in order to do that, you need the support, the safety net, the the system of um, care around you to know that if you are exploring your gender in a new way, that doesn't mean you're going to end up homeless, that doesn't mean you will end up isolated and unloved, that doesn't mean you're going to be cut off from the healthcare uh, and education that you need that these things are need to be interconnected, that both sort of one's individual flourishing, one's individual exploration and desire and well-being, and our collective interdependence and our collective care. This has been a fascinating conversation, but I still have one last question for you, M.E. We have been speaking with M.E. O'Brien, author of Family Abolition, Capitalism, and the communizing of care. Find out more about M.E. at GenderHorizon.com. Follow her on Twitter at GenderHorizon and become a Patreon patron of M.E. O'Brien at Patreon.com slash M.E. O'Brien. That's M-E-O-B-R-I-E-N. One last question, and we promise we do this with each and every one of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell. It's the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write that family abolition is the recognition that no human being should ever own or entirely dominate another person, even children. No individual should have the means to coerce intimacy or labor from another as current property relations enable. Family abolition is the destruction of private households as systems of accumulating power and property at the cost of others' well-being. Are those who make that kind of argument, are, 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 are they correct that the family is the basis of an orderly society, but our disorderly society is a reflection of that disorderly traditional family? Is our society... disorderly for the same reason our families are. Is that the key to all of the social issues that we face today? Uh, I'm afraid I didn't quite follow your question. 
Uh, I the, yeah. the the idea that if so if the family is supposed to be orderly in this tra- in this traditional way, right. and then that is going to be reflected in society, is our disorderly society a reflection of that disorderly family? Is that the problem that we should be addressing? Because that is the na- not the nature, but that is the essence of our disorderly society. The fascist fantasy and this is shared by people of other political persuasions, is that the the competition of capitalism is counterweighted by the stability of the family. That we can impose rigid gender norms, we can impose rigid sexual expectations, we can teach people to be ethical, disciplined people solely within the private family, within the traditional family. And that this is the counterweight to the chaos of, of capitalist competition and private private firms and private property. Um, and that, that this is that there's an there's a point here that these two logics complement each other, that the normative family and private property depend on each other in a variety of ways. And I think we can do better, that we can imagine beyond both. That actually that that uh, normative family has never really existed in the way that we imagine it. It's always depended on excluding lots of other people from being able to live that way. That the vast majority of people live in very, very different kinds of arrangements and very different ways of organizing our lives. And that we need a politics that embraces that, that takes that very seriously, that recognizes the richness of how people actually care for each other now, that fights for public policies and economic reforms, that um, increase people's capacity to live outside of uh, the normative family, and that uh, help protect people and help overcome the violence of capitalism. That that what we need to survive should not depend either on who we love or on our uh, on our ability to convince an employer that our work is profitable, that we can do better and we have to do better. M.E., I cannot thank you enough for being on today's show. M.E. is also the author of last year's speculative novel, Everything for Everyone, an oral history of the New York Commune, 2052 to 2072. We've been speaking with Emmy today about family abolition, capitalism, and the communizing of care. Again, you can become a Patreon patron of Emmy O'Brien at patreon.com slash Emmy O'Brien, O-B-R-I-E-N. Thank you so much for being on our show. This is a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate it. Take care. Take care. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I ask were written while I was high. This is hell. If you enjoyed the conversation we just played with M.E. O'Brien on family abolition, and it made you think about your own family and how you can make your family bigger and better without limiting it to what Ancestry.com and their friend, their eugenicist friends think family really is, Show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast, which happens every week on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and just clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can support This Is Hell. 
Chris, please remind us again, what is this week's question from hell? And do we have any new answers from our amazing listeners? This week's question from hell is, if you had to relive 2023 all over again, what what would be the thing you would dread living through again the most? Again, thanks to Criage. And, um... Let's see. We uh, we got some interesting answers in Patreon. Okay. The first one is from Nos Revej. Okay. If I say work, does that mean all of it or just one particular day? <laughs> all right. Old Grouch wrote, The disappointment in humanity that Gaza represents, offset only by the love of my l- life still being here. What? Essential wrote, Crammingantipolygraph.org. So I went to that site to figure out what is antipolygraph.org. It's a website about how polygraphy is quackery. So there you go. It was actually kind of interesting. Nate the Great wrote, the first time I heard Donald Trump's name. Hmm. All right. And a public Wait. universal comrade wrote, how the hell would I know? I repressed that shit. <laughs> Which is pretty good. And uh, so we got some answers from uh, Facebook as well. I think we got to all of those yesterday. So we don't. We can skip over those. Do we have any at Welcome to the Hellhole? Oh, let me double check. Probably not. I think that we're all caught up, actually, when I look at what is appearing on my screen over here. Let's see here. Let me double check. We got some from like 21, 21 hours. Okay, ago. what's that? Donald wrote, summer of 1990, I was finishing college. I had nothing set up, nowhere to go, and no idea about how ugly things could have gotten. Well, it doesn't really make sense when we're asking you what part of 2023 you don't want to live through again unless he lived through 1990 again in 2023. (laughs) (laughs) Any more? That's probably it. Trying to figure out which one is my favorite for this week. I think, you know, I think my favorite for this week... Oh, the anti-polygraphy one is really good. You know what? My favorite answer to this week's question from hell is from John T., who answered the question from hell, what do you what do you not want to relive about 2023? John T. says, with a couple of exceptions, pretty much all of 2023. So, John T., you are the winner of this week's question from hell. Congratulations. Just tell us what piece of This Is Hell swag you want from what is available at thisishell.com when you click on support. And we'll get that in the mail to you as soon as possible. My answer to this week's question from hell, if you had to relive 2023 all over again, what would be the thing you would dread living through again the most? Uh, That's easy for me. The hernia surgery I had in early July, uh, from which I'm still recuperating, and has changed my six-pack stomach into a keg, albeit a pony keg, but a a keg nonetheless. And I didn't have a six-pack stomach because I worked out or anything. I think it was just too skinny. 
<laughs> so don't think that I was in great shape. And again, thanks to Criage for suggesting this week's question from hell at the Welcome to Hellhole Facebook group page, which you should join. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell throughout 2023. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And on Patreon, on this week, we finally wrap up what was supposed to be a one-off, then a two-parter, and turned into a three-week series where I tell you what I learned, and hopefully hopefully you learned, on the show over the last four months. Also on Patreon, back in 2005, one of our very favorite interviews was with Michael Massing, who was a semi-regular guest on the show, but at that time he was a contributing editor at the Columbia Journalism Review. And uh, he would eventually become the executive editor at the Columbia Journalism Review. He was also writing frequently on the press and foreign affairs on the pages of the New York Review of Books. His book, Now They Tell Us, on press coverage, horrible press coverage of the war in Iraq, had recently been published at the time of this conversation. Michael was on to talk about a couple of articles that had recently been posted at the New York Review of Books, uh, including the end of news with a question mark at it after it, and the press, the enemy within. Michael was highly critical of the press as they became nothing more than a cheerleader for the George W. Bush administration and its highly illegal, unethical, immoral, and unprovoked wars. So, Chris, what are the interviews that we will be playing next week during the best of 2023? We start next week on Boxing Day, the day after Christmas, by playing our entire show from April 10th only a few weeks after the 20th anniversary of the U.S. war in Iraq, when we spoke with, when we spoke with someone who lived through it. Rasha al-Akidi, Rasha al-Akidi, who wrote New Lines Magazine's article, Living and Reliving the U.S. Invasion of Iraq. That is a stunning interview. Her eyewitness accounts of Iraq before the invasion, Iraq during the invasion, and then Iraq a few months after the invasion is mind-blowing. And then what's going on on Tuesday? Or uh, sorry, the the second show next week. Yeah, the following day. Yeah. Uh, We will share our entire June 20th show from Summer Solstice Eve and our discussion with Miliaku Enwabuze, who was on to tell us about her scalawagasi on Stop Cop City, how to build the end of the world in defense of the chaotic protester. And one of my favorite lines of that interview is, you know, sometimes... You, somebody's just got to be jumped, <laughs> which is a phrase to remember by. And uh, what's the final interview we're sharing next week? We wrap up next week's uh, Best Of Shows and the year with a February 8th episode featuring an interview with she- uh, Sheila Liming joins us in... I'll start over again, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. We wrap up next week's Best Of Shows and the years with our February 8th episode featuring an interview with uh, Sheila Liming joins us in hell to talk about a recently published book, Hanging Out, The Radical Power of Killing Time. And if you want to find out about the radical power of killing time and hanging out, this is Hell Office Hours, the meet and greet that's really a drink and think, happen every Wednesday night at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. But we're having a special edition of Office Hours tonight, as we do every year on the final Office Hours of of the year. So today, Wednesday, December 20th, Winter Solstice Eve, 
Join us for the annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party, which will be held during our regularly scheduled office hours again at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, beginning around 6 p.m. this evening. Hope you can all join us for the This Is Hell Holiday Office Hours. This Is Hell has also been named a finalist at Chicago's Best, as Chicago's Best Podcast in the Chicago Reader Best of 2023 Readers Poll. Also, your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz, that's me, has been nominated as a finalist in the same poll as Best Radio DJ. You can now vote for us under the City Life category, chicagoreader.com slash best. Polls are open through January 14th of next year. The winners will be announced sometime in February. So if you want to really bother the hell out of Chicago's corporate establishment media, vote for completely listener-supported This Is Hell as Best Podcast and me, Chuck Mertz, as Best Radio DJ under the City Life category at chicagoreader.com slash This Is Hell. Also, vote for Carrie's Lounge, C-A-R-Y apostrophe S. Carrie's Lounge, the bar downstairs from us, which has been nominated as a finalist as Best Neighborhood Bar, Best Dive Bar, and best beer garden. Finally, we got an email from Kafka S. Kafka writes, Hello, Chuck. The This Is Hell 2023 interview I am keen to give a re-listen to has not that has not been requested yet. Uh, so here I am writing in. As we head to holiday gatherings with the highest rate of COVID infection since the October 20... Or so, sorry, the Omicron 2021 holidays... I think a re-listen to Rob Wallace's January interview is appropriate. Remember, Rob Wallace is the epidemiologist who got everything right about the COVID epidemic, or pandemic, I should say. As well, it is through Rob that I first heard of This Is Hell, Kafka writes, so I particularly uh, appreciate your on-air get-togethers. Listening to the show around that first interview, I was hooked by the audience participation opportunity of the question from hell. I am tickled pink each time y'all laugh at my answers, and I am still chuffed to bits to have won. Yes! In 2023, like 2022, some of my favorite This Is Hell has been your Patreon monologues. This year, it was your Cottage on Lake thoughts, which particularly stuck. People should subscribe so they can check it out and support the show at patreon.com slash thisishell. I hope you can you get some more rejuvenating energy from end-of-year festivities and have a good balance of relaxation, happiness, and hell through 2024. Your comrade, Kafka. Thanks, Kafka. Yeah, I find it really weird that so many podcasts that are supposedly about advocating for real democracy do not allow any listener participation whatsoever and thanks for the kind words about the patreon monologues and thanks to everybody who has sent us uh, gotten contact with us via any of the social media platforms or email throughout the year your guest suggestions have been fantastic and we look to be working with you more and more throughout 2024 thanks to chris Coolfan for producing today's show I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed, live-streaming radio podcast host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on your burn- that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Uh. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. 
And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.